So we saw on the video um, that we have some Christmas boxes, the, uh, the shoe box, <laughs> what are we calling this thing? <laughs> Operation Christmas Child, thank you. Uh, we have uh, quite a few left, and if you haven't uh, done one yet, we'd love for you to grab one on your way out. This is the last week, so uh, next Sunday we need to get those back here, and we're going to uh, turn them around, and we are a hub uh, for the region for uh, the Christmas boxes. So other churches, other people bring their boxes to us, and, and then uh, we send them on to the next location where they get to go uh, to all the kids. So um, it's kind of a cool thing. So we get to participate and do boxes, and then we get to serve by collecting everybody else's boxes here. Uh, if you haven't uh, done one, then I encourage you to do one. But also, if you want to help serve uh, Denise Bowker, she uh, organizes the collection. Uh, you can get with her. She needs some volunteers for the week to kind of see all those boxes come in. Love to have some more people participate there. Um, so we're going to talk about something this morning which probably doesn't, to most people, seem like a misconception. I would say most people think that this is pretty easy subject. God's love, God's unconditional love. You ever heard that God loves you unconditionally? Um, why would that be confusing? Why would there be misunderstanding there? A uh, couple things. Uh, one is that in Scripture, we have different words in Greek and Hebrew that are love, but that we translate into one word, love. And so in Greek especially, we have Agape love. Have you heard of agape love? And agape love is the greatest love. It is uh, pure. It's authentic. It is self-sacrificing. It is how God loves us. And then we have phileo love, which is where we get the, the word Philadelphia, right? It's the, the city of what? Brotherly love. And that means that there's affection, there's uh, friendship, there's enjoyment, that there's this tight, you know, knit uh, relationship, that kind of love. And so we have these different forms of love, but when we see it in Scripture, it just says love. And so we don't always know exactly, you know, what is being talked about there because there's another thing that happens, which is that we have our own expectations for what love should be. So um, one of the things that we see is that when we say love, what some people interpret that to mean is um, niceness. That when, when you're loving, that means that you're going to be nice. Is that wrong? <laughs> you said yes. No, it's not wrong. It's just not necessarily the whole picture. Um, some of us who are not nice would agree that that doesn't seem to be the exact right reference. But there's this idea that love is just nice. And that's not necessarily all wrong, but it's not exactly all right. Um, some people think that love uh, has to be basically like worship and um, adoration and uh, almost like obsession. So when you fell in love with your spouse, right? There was this obsession that you wanted to be together all the time and never leave sight of each other, couldn't stand to be away from each other, cried when they were gone for, you know, a weekend or something, right? You guys are so unromantic. It's <laughs> really pathetic. So, but 
the thing is that some people do have that expectation for uh, their relationship. So if you don't express your love that way to this extent of extreme, you know, like obsession with this person, then they think, well, you don't love me. And there's, or if I don't feel that, you know, kind of feeling towards my spouse, then I'm not in love with them. And so what we have in our country right now is um, a lot of divorce and broken relationships because there's a misunderstanding of love on that level. We've, what do people say when they get divorced? Well, we fell out of love. What do you mean by that? You, you mean that you had this expectation for what love should feel like all the time, and you don't feel that way all the time, so therefore now your marriage must be broken or something must be wrong with it. And so there's a misunderstanding about what love is on that level. There's another thing that we think, not we think, well, some of us do think. The world kind of tries to get us to think this way. Love should be absolute, unconditional acceptance. It must be affirming in every way, that there must be absolutely no judgment, that there must be this sense that I agree with everything you're doing, everything you think, everything that you believe in, in every way, so that if I love you, then I will totally accept all your actions and all your thoughts and, and who you are and who you want to be and who you think that you are today versus tomorrow versus the next day or whatever. That is love. And that is the, the, uh, the definition of love that the world has put onto God and onto the church that we must not be loving because we are still saying that God has standards that we are not meeting. And if that's the case, then and I thought of you know, making this message titled, um, A Loving God Wouldn't dot, dot, dot. What, what are some things that we think a loving God wouldn't do? He wouldn't send anybody to hell, right? He wouldn't judge anyone. He wouldn't, he wouldn't allow anyone to suffer. He wouldn't allow anybody to be unhappy. God, a loving God wouldn't, you know, you just fill in the gap there where... What that, what that term is, what a loving God wouldn't do. And so what's happened is we've changed the idea of what love is or should be and then forced that onto God and said, well, God, you must not be very good if you don't love people the way that I think that you should love people. And here's the thing is that because of these misunderstandings about love, um, there's a huge misunderstanding about our need for God. And there's something else going on, which is that this is a tragedy in the church that we don't really get how awesome God's love really is. Because we've tried to change the definition and we don't know what God's actual definition is, we don't know the great extent and the, the power and the wonder and the permanence and the joy of, of how God loves us. We, we don't get that. And so we're just kind of, we're missing a huge part of what Christianity really is when we don't get it. So we're going to try to get it today. Uh, we're going to look at Romans chapter 5. Let's stand as we read God's word. Romans 5, um, verses 1 through 8, says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through him. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand 
And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that you love us in a way that is unconditional. That you uh, love us in spite of ourselves. You love us in spite of our sin. You love us even when we were your enemies. You proved it. You manifested it, showed it uh, through what you were willing to do to give yourself on the cross that we could have a right relationship with you. Lord, help us to to get a, a, a real, clear picture, understanding of who you are, how much you love us, and what you're um, willing to do to change us, <laughs> to make us um, new creatures in Christ, pure, forgiven, clean, right. Um, Lord, we thank you for all that you do, all that you have done, and all that you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. So, a couple things um, that are interesting here as we start. It says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, how many of you want peace with God? I mean, and how many of you don't like to raise your hand in church? <laughs> I... It's funny that I ask you guys to do that because I hate responding to people's questions. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so this is the thing. We want peace with God, um, but we don't always want it on his terms. And here's what I mean. I've been in a lot of hospital rooms. I've been in a lot of um, uh, bedsides when people are passing away. I've talked to a lot of people um, who are approaching death, and um, here's what people oftentimes want. They want peace with God, but they want it on their terms, and, and I hear this, and I'm, I have to be sensitive about it because um, there is a reality to this, but when people want peace with God, what they seem to mean is that they need to forgive God for not meeting their expectation in life. That's a lot of people's definition of having peace with God. God didn't do for me what I thought he ought to. He didn't spare me from a bad situation. He didn't uh, heal that, that disease. He didn't uh, restore that marriage. He didn't give me that promotion. He didn't help me to avoid this situation, which he could have. He didn't spare me from some suffering that I went through. He didn't change a situation that I thought he should, or whatever this case may be. There was something in their life, or many, many things, maybe, many things in their life that they thought God ought to have done one thing, and he didn't do it. He did something else, or he didn't do the thing that they believed it was you know, in his power to do. And so they've held this anger and resentment towards God for most of their life, and at the end of their life, 
there's this sense that I need to somehow forgive God. And as a Christian, I do understand there are things that we don't comprehend. Why do things happen the way that they do? And we need to release some of those things. But here's the deal. When, it's, when we see in, in Scripture that um, God is holy and God is righteous and God is pure and God is perfect and we are sinners and when we begin to flip that over and we say God isn't doing the things that he ought to do according to my definition, my standard or my expectation, then we become the judge of God. We become the judge of people. We become the judge of Scripture um, and we put ourselves in God's position, and, and we are the ones who are in charge. And what Scripture tells us about that is that that is idolatry. Anything, my definition of idolatry is simply this, that when I take the position of God, then that's idolatry. All the things that we see about putting things above God, you know, idols, other gods, other beliefs, other, you know, uh, values, other priorities, whatever, whatever they might be, all of that is basically me being God. I'm the one in charge. I know best. I'm the one who is smart enough. I'm the one who, you know, has the, the right understanding. And so I'm flipping that whole thing of redemption over upside down. I'm in charge and, and everything has to come into a, a position of my authority. And when that happens, then you can't have peace with God. You can't receive his love because what is going on is you have missed the whole scheme of, of life and creation and who you are and who God is. There's a total misunderstanding about everything when, when that's your idea of what peace with God is. So you have to flip that thing back over, understand who you are. You're, you're a creature. You're a sinful creature who doesn't know everything, who doesn't do everything right, who does a lot of things wrong, who has wrong expectations, has a lot of misunderstandings. Would, can you agree with that? So when we, we begin to start to see that a lot of the things that are in this world, I don't quite grasp. And a lot of things about my own self, I don't quite grasp. Anybody ever have uh, things that you do that you're like, why did I do that? When I was a kid, we were talking about some stupid things that kids do. Just absent-minded. They don't mean anything by it. When I was a kid, I was like five. My dad was one of the pastors of a church, and they were having some kind of a prayer meeting or worship meeting or something. They were having some kind of a service. It was nighttime. And I remember being in the lobby, and our church had uh, the fire alarm, so you pull the thing and it's sleeting out like it's icy. And I'm just like in the lobby and I just see the thing and I just pull it. And I'm telling you, I didn't think one thought about it. It wasn't like, I wonder what would happen or I think I'm going to pull this thing. It was just, I just reached up and pulled it. Just sinful, stupid thing. And I got spanked. <laughs> My dad was also the principal of the Christian school and he had a big old paddle in his office. And so do you realize we, we do things like that? We just do things that are wrong. We don't know what we're doing. We do it ignorantly. We do it absentmindedly. We do it, 
You know, sometimes willfully, we just, we don't get everything. And what peace with God, he says, we're justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What has happened is that the love of God has been so profound that he has given us ways to have a relationship with him in spite of the fact that we are sinful creatures and he's perfect. So the first thing that you understand about God's love is that it is a covenant love. And you're like, okay, covenant love, that doesn't sound very, very, I don't know, emotional. It doesn't sound like, like a good feeling. Like a covenant love sounds kind of cold and calculating. Would you agree? Maybe not. But here's the thing is that all through Scripture, what you have is a God who is willing to come into permanent um, contracts with people in order to bridge a gap of their relationship. All, he, he starts with Abraham. He's, he's going to make a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham is just a sinful human being who believes in God, who believes God. And he, he can't, on his side... Um, he can't really commit to anything because he's not strong enough to. So God actually makes a covenant with Abraham by himself. If you read uh, Genesis chapter 15, you see that God is willing to actually do both sides of the covenant by himself. And what he's doing, he's establishing the fact that God will be faithful to the covenant, to this permanent contract with Abraham, no matter what Abraham does. Abraham can't fulfill his side of it. God's going to fulfill both sides of it. He does that with the Jewish people through Moses. He does it with David in, in calling forth the Messiah. He does it in the New Testament when he says, this is the blood of the new what? Covenant. Shed for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, take and drink ye all of it. What he's saying is, when you agree to the covenant that God has put forward, then you say, by faith, I'm going to receive Jesus as my Savior I'm not the one who's making the covenant God is. All I'm doing is receiving that, and when I receive that, then God says, I will fulfill all the, the requirements for the covenant. And then he'll put his Holy Spirit in you, which is the seal of the covenant. It's the guarantee that you will receive the promises that God has made to you. He's made some promises to you. He says that I will make you a new creation, that all your sin I'm not going to hold against you. I'm going to change your nature. You're a sinful creature, but I'm going to make you more like my son. I'm going to put my truth in you. I'm going to help you to understand what my word says so that you can apply it to your life. I'm going to give you the promise of eternal life. That when you die, and guess what? You know what I'm going to say? You're going to die if you don't get raptured first, which I'm hoping for. That you will go to heaven. It's his promise. That's what he says he will guarantee. And all you have to do is say, God, yes. That, that's a, a profound kind of love because he says, I'm going to do all the things and all I'm asking you to do is accept them, receive them. That, that's a pretty cool kind of love. We have a similar thing um, in our experience. The greatest uh, expression of love that we can enter into is when a man and a woman stand before a preacher and they say, I do till what? Oh, till death? Isn't that pretty profound? You're entering into a covenant, a legal contract because of what? You have initially a feeling. 
I, I'm in love with this person. But then you follow up that feeling with a commitment. And the commitment isn't just that you'll be married for a little while. The commitment is that I'm going to stay faithful to you until I die or you die. Whichever comes first. Right? That's, that's a pretty big step of love towards somebody. That's a pretty powerful thing. And God says, that thing that you do in marriage is a reflection of my reality, which is the actual truth. I will never fail you. I will never forsake you. I will never be unfaithful to you. That's God's promise. And he's able to do that. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, he says that... Uh, we rejoice in our sufferings. <laughs> Do you? I mean, Paul probably did. He's, he's writing this. We rejoice in our sufferings. We're glad. You know, we're happy. And here's the thing. The Bible says this over and over and over. It's not like this is the only place in Scripture where it says rejoice in your sufferings. It says it many times. It says we rejoice in our sufferings because it produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and uh, character produces hope, and uh, that's... That's uh, something that never fails us. It doesn't put us to shame. It's an amazing thing, this hope. And here's what's going on, a couple things. One is that when you have a relationship with somebody, is it always good? Or are there some ups and downs? And when you can get through some of the ups and downs in your relationship, and you can manage that somehow with forgiveness and grace and then you have something that is stronger, something that is more mature, something that is more reliable. I know that, that uh, my wife isn't going to leave me uh, any time that I act like a jerk on a daily basis, right? It doesn't even give me an excuse to be a jerk. I'm just saying that you know that we can get through some stuff when you've been through some stuff, and it grows you. And here's what the Bible promises, uh, unfortunately, I'm sorry, but that you will go through trials and tribulation. In this world, you will have trouble. You'll have trouble because of a few things. One is, even though you're a new creature in Christ, which is fantastic news, guess what? You still have a sinful nature, right? You're not a sinner. You're not identified as, I'm a sinner, because you're a new creature in Christ, and you're saved, and you're a saint, and, and you're pure in God's eyes, and he sees something different in you, but you still... You still have sinful nature that is there that you wrestle with, struggle with, that the Holy Spirit is trying to correct. So what's happening is that you will do some things, sometimes on accident and sometimes on purpose, that are wrong that you will suffer for. Agreed? You get that? Sometimes you do the wrong thing, you suffer for that. Sometimes, because you live in a sinful world, other people will do wrong things, sometimes on accident, sometimes on purpose, that you will suffer for. We're talking about that this morning. And then after service, a little kid ran in front of a senior citizen. And I'm trying to be very kind to, about that. So, and they fell. And they, you know, hurt themselves. The floor hurt them. Um, so... And one thing is kids and parents, try to make sure your kids aren't running around crazy and knocking over our senior people. <laughs> um, 
That's important. But the other thing is that sometimes you just suffer because of something that somebody else does. It's not your fault. And no matter what you do, no matter how careful you are, no matter how well you're living, something somebody else does in this world will cause you to suffer. It is of no fault of yours. That's going to happen. It does happen. It happens all the time. Now, there's a third thing, and we don't like this, but the, the reality is that the Bible says God disciplines those he, what? Loves. And so, does God love you? Do you wish he loved you just a little bit less so they didn't discipline you so much? <laughs> Not at all. But the, the thing is that uh, God will, he'll smack your hand. Sometimes he'll, you know, spank your bottom. <laughs> And that is an act of love of God towards you. Just like when you discipline your children, it's not because you, you hate them. It's because you love them and want the best for them. And you know that what they're doing is going to damage them in the future or right now. And that you have to correct that now or else it could really seriously injure how they think about things or how they behave in the world. So... There needs to be some discipline, and God's going to bring some discipline into your life. Sometimes he's going to allow some hard things into your life to get you to think right, to behave right, to know that that's not the priority, but God is the priority. Amen? So we suffer in these different ways, and, and sometimes it's trying to figure out which way am I suffering. Am I, is it my fault? Is it somebody else? Is it God's discipline? Is it satanic attack? What's going on here? And the reality is, you know... We're going to live in a world like that, that we're going to have problems. And that's why it produces endurance is because God does not promise that those things are going to be taken away from you in this life. You will not have it easy. He's not going to remove pain and suffering from your life during your entire lifespan. You might have moments and periods where things are pretty good, but I'm just telling you, you're going to have troubles, you're going to have difficulties, and that's going to be the case until you go to the grave. And this is why it produces hope, ultimately, is because I know that the power of the Holy Spirit in me enables me to walk through the world that is full of trouble, and that's not the, the goal. The goal is to be in heaven, where sin does not interfere with my relationship with God anymore where there is no distance between me and the Lord, where there is no sin that causes pain, there is no issue, no lack, no problem, no suffering, no guilt, no sadness, no, right? Anything of the world, it's all glory all the time. That's why it produces hope, and hope doesn't let you down because my goal now is heaven. And here's, let me just be really honest with you where a lot of people are struggling with life is because they don't have a heavenly perspective. They have a life perspective. And everything is about life and life being good and life not having problems and life being pleasurable and life being easy. And because that's people's focus and they don't understand that heaven should be our focus, that they're miserable. They're constantly worrying over every problem, every lack, every situation that they can't control, and it's like driving them nuts. And what we've done is we've taken our life and we've tried to put it in our hands instead of 
having an open hand to God and saying, God, this is yours, you do with it what you want, and I'll serve and honor you the best that I can, but I want to be with you. Because what good is it to go through life miserable, complaining about every bad thing that happens to you and not giving it to the Lord? What good is that? It doesn't do you any good, and it doesn't show a witness to the world, and it doesn't help the cause. Okay, I got off track. Suffering, we rejoice in it, and, and it's, not even, it's not even that God doesn't love you through that. He loves you more deeply through that, and you show how much you love God when you continue to glorify Him through your suffering. He says, uh, I'm going to skip verse 5 and go to verse 6. Another aspect of his love, he says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Weak here doesn't mean um, what we maybe often might think it means. Weak here means weak morally. It means, it means in our character, we were weak. In, in our ability to be good, we were weak. In our ability to be righteous, we were weak. We were we were unable. Okay, weak is, is unable. You, you can't lift something of a certain weight. It means you're, you're unable to do that. It means you're weak in that, to that degree. And he's saying you're weak to the degree you couldn't really please God because you weren't able to do in your self-discipline what God required. And while you were immoral, he said, I love you so much. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to die for you. And he, Paul uses this interesting illustration. He says, for a righteous person, not too many people would die. I mean, <laughs> I kind of wonder if Paul is being a little bit sarcastic here, if he's joking. Maybe not. But the, the thing is, like, a righteous person maybe isn't somebody that everybody really likes that much. I think that's part of the, the deal. But he says a good person, maybe somebody might die for that kind of a person. But Christ, his love is this. It's agape love, meaning it's self-sacrificing. It's willing to go the full extent for somebody else's good, even to the extent of dying for sinners. And then he says in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Not even just not quite a good person, but you are at enmity with God, that you are an enemy of God. And here's the picture that, that we have in Scripture. Jesus on the cross, okay, he's perfect son of God. He has lived a perfect life. He has uh, done everything right, and he is perfect in his nature. He's never said anything wrong, done anything wrong. Anything wrong. He's on the cross. He's, he's dying. And in that moment, what is happening? You guys know the, the crucifixion story? What is happening in the moment? He's got one guy dying next to him who's also hurling insults at him. Like, oh, I thought you were the Messiah. Why don't you get off the cross and get us off of the cross? And I mean, if you have all this power, what's going on here? The other guy, you know, he's like, hey, <laughs> we, we are dying because we deserve it. He doesn't deserve it. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that little act of faith was enough for Jesus to say, today you will be with me in paradise. But 
all around him, he has the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the priests hurling insults at him. I mean, they've been beating him up all day, literally beating him, pulling his beard out, spitting on him. They're ridiculing and mocking him. And they're saying, if you're the Messiah, just come off the cross. Then we'll believe in you. That's all you got to do. And guess what? Jesus could do that. He could come right off the cross. He could heal himself. He could call down 10,000 angels to kill everybody in sight. He had that power, that authority. He is the Son of God. He has that within him. And yet, what does he say? Remember what he says? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In that moment, the agape love of God is such that he's willing to do for people who don't appreciate him, who actually are his enemies, mocking and ridiculing him in the moment. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And here's what I think, and and I could be wrong about this, but Jesus is God and he does not have a sinful nature, but he is still a human being. And he does have human emotions. Would you agree? Maybe they're different than ours to to an extent, but not completely. Don't you think that Jesus in that moment is having to restrain a little bit of anger Like, how dare you? I'm God and not just, I mean, just the respect that God deserves, but I'm dying for you right now. And this is what you're doing. It's just, I mean, we feel that. I can only imagine that he had to feel that. And here's what I'm saying is that agape love is not as if there's, there's no bad feelings. It is restraining those feelings and doing what is right. It's putting those feelings under control and still acting in the best interest of the other person. I might be really mad at you right now, but I'm going to do what's right for you. I'm not going to lash out. I'm not going to harm you. I'm not going to do what's going to steer you away from the right path. I'm not going to do what's going to injure your, your emotion, your psyche, your body. Right? That's agape love. It is a powerful kind of love that God has. It is self-sacrificing even when we don't deserve it. How much does God love you? He loves you with a covenant love. He loves you with a self-sacrificing agape love. He loves you to that extent. And here's the the final thing. Okay, the final thing is, you go back to verse 5, and it says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So I can explain God's love to you all day long. Uh, The Bible says that God loves you. The illustrations that he uses is that he loves you like children, right? It says that he gave you the power to become children of God so that that if you will receive Christ, you become his child. He loves you like that. That's, That's basic biology. Most parents love their children to a degree that most children can't understand until they have children, right? It's like something just happens. When that baby is born, it's just like, I don't even know. Like your heart, it's like the Grinch. becomes two more sizes bigger than it was. It's, it's, 
And God says, I love you like that. If, if a parent can understand how much you love your child, then you can understand how much he loves you. He says, I love you like um, you're my bride. And I'm a faithful husband that I'll never, ever, ever, ever be unfaithful. Um, like how two people who are deeply, truly in love with each other in marriage, how they love each other, that's, that's the way that I love you. And he's saying, that doesn't really quite get it, but that's kind of close. And then he says, I love you like my own body. Paul says in Ephesians that the husband is supposed to love his wife as he loves his own body. And then he says, but so the deal here is that that, that illustration is really about God's love or Christ's love for the church. It's not really about marriage. It's just kind of an illustration. But he says, just think about this. If you care for yourself at all, this is what Jesus says. I care for you like I would care for myself. Like, it's almost like you're me. That's how much he loves you. Like, these are the illustrations that he uses. And he's like, this is just the extent of human language. It's as good as I can get. I can't, with you... It's, this is the best I can do, what you can understand. It goes beyond that. It's so far beyond that. But that's the best that we can get. But here's the deal. Do you feel loved by God? I can explain it. I can tell you what to define it. I can tell you how the Bible describes it. But do you feel loved by God? We had that discussion in a men's group, and we were talking about it, and how do you receive love, and all that stuff, and we're like, I think this is a women's study we're doing here. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, I know that's not PC. So, I'm just saying that the guys struggled with trying to understand that. Like, it didn't, like, how does that, how do you define it, how do you explain it, how do you feel it, how does that work? We were like, uh, I don't know. We kind of went around the room a little bit and didn't quite have a good explanation. And I've heard people say, you know, finally I felt God's love, you know, and I'm thinking, what does that feel like? And you're like, man, you are cold hearted. But here's the deal. I think that we have put the wrong emphasis or explanation or something, emotion on this thing. Like we think that there's got to be some kind of a intense feeling that people have to have, and then they'll know that they are loved by God. When, when the, here's what the Word says, that when I knew that I was a sinner and that Jesus died for me and I received Him by faith, then I was receiving the love of God. It didn't have to be an emotional experience. It was, a, it was an understanding of faith. When I stepped into faith and said, Jesus, you're the Savior and I need the forgiveness that you offer, then I stepped into the love of God in a way that is complete. And then what happens from there, he says that I will pour my Holy Spirit into you. And when I pour my Holy Spirit into you, that's God coming into your heart. And what does 1 John 4, 8 say? God is what? God is love. You, and here's all I'm saying is that two things. One, a Christian who's really a Christian has to be a born-again Christian. There's no other way to be a Christian other than to be born again. You're born again of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into you, changes you, makes you a new creature in Christ. That's how it happens. That's how it has to happen for anyone who will be a Christian. They will receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He will put his Holy Spirit in you, and he'll make you a new creature in Christ. When that happens, you have received God's love. That's what it says. 
This is why I was always confused about this because I thought that some people were having some kind of a unique, weird experience that I wasn't having, and that's not the case. Every Christian person who is a born-again Christian has received the full extent of God's love when they receive the Holy Spirit. You don't have to feel any particular way about it. You, it's wonderful if you do. If people cry and, and weep at the altar, that's, a, that's great. But there are some of us who don't cry and weep. Hardly ever. And we're not dead inside. <laughs> Contrary to what some people might say. We've received the full extent of God's love through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now here's how you respond to that. What does the Holy Spirit do? What does he do? The Holy Spirit has basically three ministries. One is the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. You know that? It's one of his primary ministries in your life. He convicts you of sin. Does that feel loving when you feel bad about sin in your life? But that's God's love being poured out into your life. He's saying, stop. That's the wrong way. Don't do that. And he puts you back on the right path and he says, I, I want to have a close relationship with you and the sin that you're going to introduce into your life is going to keep me at a distance from you. And so I'm going to continue to tell you as, as often as you need it that that's the wrong thing. Don't do that. Stay away from that and give it to the Lord and ask for forgiveness so that you can stay close. That's God's love. That's the Holy Spirit's work in your life to keep you close to him. Conviction of, of, of sin. The second thing that he does is he gives you an understanding of his word. It says that he will reveal truth. He will share with you the meaning, the understanding of scripture. And so the Holy Spirit, his ministry is to reveal what God's word says so that you know who God is, so that you know who you are, so that you know what to do, so that you know the future of, of where you're going, so that you know how to live in, in this world. That. It doesn't seem super loving to, for God to be just informing you constantly about what his plans are and, and who he is, and, but that's love to, in God's definition, to give you understanding, okay? And then the third thing that he does is that he empowers you to serve. He, empower, he gives you a gift of his Holy Spirit in order to be able to use that for other people, for Loving God. He says that all the, the, the law and the prophets hang on two commands, to love God and to love your neighbor. Isn't that interesting? Everything about what God requires, everything about who God is, everything about how God wants you to live in the world, summed up in two things. Love God, love your neighbor. How do you love God? You know what Jesus says? If you love me, you will do what? You will obey me. First John all about love. He says, if you want to love God, here's what you got to do. You got to love your brother. 1 Corinthians 13, talking about love, what do you do? Love is patient. It's kind. It's not boastful. It's, it's all these things that are sacrificing of what you want in order to help somebody else. It says, you want to love like God, then you have to love the way God loves you. Forgive people. Have grace for people. 
believe. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, love believes all things. You find that strange? You know what that means, though? It means that I believe that you as a human being are highly valuable to God and that you have potential. Every single person can be redeemed if they will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And as I'm trying to live a a life that is loving, I'm going to speak the truth so that people can achieve that high potential. Speaking the truth isn't always seen as very loving. Sometimes it's seen as harsh. It's one of the most loving things that you can do. If you do it with an intention to say, how can I help that person to get close to God? A couple weeks ago, uh, a few weeks ago maybe, I said something that I just want to repeat because I thought, I, it's easy to forget. Last week, somebody reminded me that I said it, and I had forgotten that I had said it. Okay. How do you respond to God's love in your life? I mean, first of all, you respond by loving him back, right? Obeying him, doing what he wants. But here's the other thing. How can I be a blessing to somebody? How can I be a blessing to somebody today? Every day, as you're waking up, as you're doing your devotions, as you're praying, as you're in the shower, whatever you're doing, make that part of your, your prayer. God, how can I be a blessing to somebody? Because what's going to happen is you get your mind and your intentions and your thoughts and your feelings off of yourself and onto other people. How am I impacting that person that I'm talking to today? How am I impacting when I run into somebody, how do they feel after they've seen me? Do they feel better or worse? Do they get a glimpse of God or, or not? Are they respecting what I believe or they, disres- they think that I'm a hypocrite? Do they understand the power of the gospel or do they think that I'm just worldly as anybody else? How can I be a blessing to somebody who begins to love people the way that God loves people? Amen? I'm just saying if we can do that, we can begin to start seeing something that Jesus talked about. He says, they will know them by their what? By the thickness of their Bibles. <laughs> They'll know them by their love. Amen? Love is an amazing thing, Lord. We thank you for it. We thank you that you care for us so much that you would die for us. We thank you that you would make promises that you would keep. We thank you that you've given us hope that is permanent, that you give us uh, heaven as our home. We are strangers and aliens in the world, Lord, but we don't always live that way. Sometimes we, we think this is all that there is. We get caught up and focused on it. Lord, help us to stop. Help us to realize the truth, Lord, that we are here for a short time. And it can be good. We thank you that you've made so many things good for us to enjoy. But, Lord, the best thing is living for you living with purpose, living with healed and, and right relationships, Lord, having people in our lives that uh, we care for and that care for us that um, make life worth living, Lord. 
So help us to love the way that you do. Help us to receive your love the way that you've defined it, the way that you've offered it, the way that you've invited us uh, to receive it, Lord. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do the powerful work that only you can do, Lord, changing hearts, changing minds, opening eyes, Lord, to your will. And we'll give you all the praise, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you again, always. Um, we call the front of the stage uh, the altar. And what we mean by that is an altar in Scripture was a place where things went to die. And uh, sometimes when we come to the altar, we're, we're basically offering in sacrifice parts of our hearts or our lives to God. We're, we're committing things to God. We're saying, God, this is yours to do with what you want. And first and foremost, um, that is your whole life. As you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you just lay your life down. You say, God, I want Jesus as my Savior. Um, secondly, why people can come to the altar every week if they feel the need is because there are so many different things that we continue to try to hold on to and have control of that sometimes we need a weekly reminder to give that thing over to the Lord. And it might be your marriage, it might be your kids, it might be a, 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 an addiction that you have, it might be a friend that you, you're praying for, it might be something that you don't feel like you can handle, a problem that's too big for you. Whatever it is, come to the altar to lay it down. And there's something powerful about physically doing that. There's something powerful you know, that God can do in that. But you can do it where you're at. We invite you to. But the, this moment is for God to just clarify and solidify something that he's saying to your heart. If he's speaking to your heart about something, if you put it off, sometimes that voice gets smaller and smaller through the week. But if you bring it to the altar, uh, sometimes something really profound can change. Amen? Let's stand and sing.